Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 43, The Invasion of France. I'm your host, Will Clark, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing everything there is to do with the invasion of France in 1792. Initially, we're going to be taking a look at the First Coalition. We'll examine how events in Poland impacted the unity of the Allies, as well as the nature of the army that was assembled to crush the revolution. We'll then cover the invasion itself, including the key battles and decisive turning points. Finally, we'll unpack how the dramatic events of 1792, including French counterattacks, impacted the future of the Revolutionary War and the objectives for a crusade of universal liberty. It's going to be a great episode, and I think you'll absolutely love it. The episode extra for this episode will explore the famous Battle of Valmy, not only what happened, but the numerous historical debates surrounding the skirmish. You don't want to miss it. Now, as always, grey history is only possible because of the support of the community. A humongous thank you to everyone who has been sharing the show with friends and family, promoting the podcast on social media, leaving reviews, and sending in words of encouragement. In particular, a tremendous thank you to the new Patreon supporters of the podcast, because since leaving my job and moving out of where I was living to focus on the show full-time, it's really been the Patreon supporters that have been doing the heavy lifting when it comes to keeping the show on the air. A huge welcome to the new patrons of the podcast. This includes the virtuous citizens Dave, Alexandra, Russell, Deb, Justin, Cy, Rob, and the Let's Talk Punk Rock podcast. This also includes the new true revolutionaries, Marchie, Megan, Sean, Sandy, and Charlie. William and Laura now joins Jeffrey, Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim, Mark, and Charles as the extra generous champions of the people. Finally, a special call out to the extraordinary heroes of the revolution, Brian, Jinx, Eric and Christy. Also, a big thank you to Hannah, William, Adam and Mark for all increasing their pledge. As a quick reminder, I'm doing everything I can to bring you more grey history more often. If you find grey history entertaining, if you find it educational, if you find yourself eagerly awaiting the next episode, then please make that next episode a reality. I'm doing everything I can to bring you more ambiguities and nuances of the past, but with episodes taking almost 50 hours to produce, I can't continue to do so without your support. So please, help be the change you want to see, and help in the retelling of history that isn't black and white. The Grey History community is waiting for you now, along with hours of exclusive bonus episodes, episode extras, behind-the-scenes videos, and more. Don't wait until it's too late to help keep the show on the air.
Welcome to Grey History. Episode 43, The Invasion of France. I have many guilty pleasures. Too many, perhaps. But one of the more controversial ones is corporate jargon. I simply love hearing what new buzzwords and catchphrases are making the rounds in CEO Weekly. Low-hanging fruit, quick wins, 110%, synergy, bandwidth, win-win-win, tactical versus strategic, ideation, circle back, new normal, oh, I just love it. Now, before you think to yourself that I need to take this offline, I am indeed about to pivot from this outside-the-box introduction. You see, one of my favourite aspects of corporate jargon is the inability for all these fancy words to actually deliver a clear answer. And nowhere is this more clear than when you ask a very simple question. In my experience, ask senior management what their number one priority is, and I'm sure they'll give you an answer that includes customer satisfaction, revenue growth, cost reduction, employee retention, community impact, and improved return on equity just to round it all out. And as someone who quite enjoys etymology, that is, the history of words, I found this quite amusing. You see, in the 21st century, management will often speak of priorities. They are seemingly unable to choose just one. Instead, you'll get a list of all the various goals they're seeking to achieve, the competing interests they're trying to balance, the different considerations that are so numerous they require a whole meeting just to list them. But in my personal experience, despite all of the critically important priorities, when push comes to shove, there is often only one priority, a true priority, and that is ironic. Until the 20th century, the word priorities didn't really exist. For hundreds of years, there was no plural form of the word priority, because it was self-evident that you could only have one. Only one thing could rank above all else. Only one thing could come first. Only one thing could be regarded as the most important. Corporate jargon has seemed to lose that nuance as it seeks to be all things to all people and successfully fails to boil the ocean in the process. However, the reason why I am speaking about priorities is to do with the war effort of 1792. Prior to the toppling of King Louis in August, European monarchs, particularly the crowns of Prussia and Austria, had a variety of priorities limit French influence in their own internal affairs, suppress liberal dissent at home, prepare for the coming conflict with the troublesome revolutionaries, just to name a few. The list was long. But in reality, when it comes to foreign affairs, one priority often seems to trump. And for the courts of Berlin, Vienna and St. Petersburg, their number one priority, at least initially, might not have been what you expect. In fact, 
the number one priority had nothing to do with the French, but it had everything to do with Poland. To back up a bit, there was once a nation called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. This Commonwealth existed either officially or in a de facto state for several hundred years and covered much of modern-day Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, western Ukraine and even parts of Latvia and Russia. Once a considerable power in Eastern Europe, Poland had seen its power decline greatly by the mid-18th century and its expansionist neighbours were ready to feast at its expense. In 1772, Poland had been partitioned by the three great powers of Prussia, Austria and Russia. Some 224,000 square kilometres was annexed by the aggressive neighbours, or alternatively, 86,000 square miles. That's essentially the size of the US states of Minnesota or Utah, or just shy of the size of the United Kingdom. Seemingly overnight, Poland had lost 30% of her territory and 35% of her population. The three benefactors didn't necessarily get equal shares, but they all benefited in their own way. Austria gained some of the richest salt mines in Europe, along with valuable agricultural land. Prussia, although gaining by far the smallest slice, became a far more compact state, joining her various possessions in a continuous manner with some of Poland's most industrialised regions. Finally, Russia gained the greatest share of Poland in terms of area, and although the land wasn't necessarily as prosperous as that given to Austria, the new territory fulfilled St. Petersburg's military objectives and firmly planted Russia on Europe's doorstep. What was left of Poland was a much smaller and much weaker state, although one still of considerable size. However, although the three great powers of Central and Eastern Europe had enlarged themselves at Poland's expense, Prussia, Austria and Russia made for restless bedfellows. None of them trusted the other. In the case of Austria and Prussia, the two had been historic rivals. In fact, they had been at war multiple times in the last few decades. The War of Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War, even the relatively minor War of Bavarian Succession. The two powers battled for supremacy over Germanic Europe, and the traditional adversaries were uncomfortable allies. Furthermore, neither Prussia nor Austria had fantastic relations with Russia, the emerging great power to their east. In fact, it was Austria's willingness to go to war with Russia that helped to drive the first partition of Poland in the first place. Russian victories over the Ottoman Empire concerned the Austrians greatly, and the first partition was largely brought about due to a diplomatic crisis which threatened war in Eastern Europe. So these three powers were not best friends forever. They all knew that, and thus they all jealously eyed the actions of the other. Critically, it had been agreed that no one would touch the much-reduced state of Poland. And yes, you guessed it, someone touched it. In 1792, the Russian Empress Catherine the Great was presented with a wonderful gift in the form of the Revolutionary War. 
Far away from France, Catherine could resist becoming directly involved in any conflict, but profit from the distraction of her neighbouring powers, Prussia and Austria. Historian Robert Howard asserts that the outbreak of war did not determine Catherine's decision to invade Poland a second time, as some other historians suggest. But Howard does acknowledge that the outbreak of war in April 1792 between France and Austria greatly facilitated Russia's decision to make another move. In May 1792, while Austria and France were more or less in a stalemate after the disastrous initial attacks by the French, the Russian army crossed the borders of Lithuania and Ukraine. To say that alarm bells were ringing in the courts of Vienna and Berlin would be a gross understatement. Prussia had long desired to further enlarge herself at Poland's expense, and Austria would be damned if it was cut out of the action. Yet, while the Germanic powers had been distracted by preparations for war with the French, the Russian bear had gone and devoured Eastern Europe. As a result, throughout the spring and summer of 1792, when they potentially should have been focusing on the war with France, much attention was given in Berlin and Vienna to the Polish question. Historian Timothy Tackett states plainly that both Austria and Prussia were preoccupied with the situation in the East, while historian George Lefebvre asserts that some Prussian ministers viewed war with France as useless and dangerous now that the question of Poland had come to the fore. And make no mistake, there was no shortage of questions when it came to Poland. Who would get what? What would remain? If one of the great powers wasn't to gain new territory, what other indemnities could it expect? The discussions throughout 1792 became very convoluted. At one point, Austria was trying to negotiate a settlement which would see it abstain from claiming new lands in Poland, but swap the Austrian Netherlands for Bavaria. That never came to be, but needless to say, all of this potential horse trading took up a tremendous amount of attention and energy. Furthermore, the Russian Empress Catherine the Great, a crafty and capable politician, insisted on negotiating bilaterally with Berlin and Vienna. By dealing with each court separately, Catherine fueled fears in both governments that they were about to be shortchanged by a sudden agreement or secret treaty. As a result, just when Prussia and Austria needed to be united and focused on crushing the French, the two historic rivals were increasingly distrustful of the other and fixated on issues to the east. Historian Robert Howard claims that the first rift within the coalition had emerged before the Prussians even entered France, with quarrels over Poland laming and disrupting the first coalition's efforts against the revolution. Historian Charles Mallet shares these sentiments and characterises a dysfunctional alliance crippled by suspicion. France was to be left to tear herself to pieces for a while. That was the pretext for delay. But in reality, neither Prussia nor Austria could bear to leave a free hand to Russia, and indeed 
the deepest distrust reigned between these two allies. One cast suspicious glances on the other as they marched upon Lorraine. This explains the miraculous event at Valmy. The coalition that menaced France was incomplete, unsteady, disturbed by ineradicable suspicions, and a prey, moreover, to a dangerous infatuation. So, in the summer of 1792, the courts of Vienna, Berlin and St. Petersburg had multiple priorities. Defeat the French, reinstall King Louis, put the revolutionary genie back in the bottle. But in reality, one priority was always going to Trump, and the fixation on Poland divided and distracted the European monarchs at precisely the wrong time. As a result, the situation in Poland had important consequences for the Revolutionary War with France. Nowhere is this more clear than in the army mustered by the First Coalition. After the flight to Varennes in June 1791, you may remember that the monarchs of Austria and Prussia issued the Declaration of Pilnitz in August of that year. In it, they labelled Louis's position in France as a subject of common interest for all European monarchs. Yet despite this common interest, the RSVPs were notably few in number. Russia had made noises of committing troops to the cause, but stipulated that no forces would be available until Poland was secured and settled. With Russia prioritising Poland over Paris, support was needed from elsewhere. Sweden had also championed the talking notes of counter-revolution, but again, no soldiers materialised. The assassination of Gustav III in March 1792 had seen the elimination of a key ally for the interventionist cause. Now governed by a young teenager, Sweden would stay on the sidelines, as would Spain and Great Britain if their respective governments could find ways to maintain their neutrality. Joining them in the neutral zone were much of the Germanic princes of the Holy Roman Empire, along with the various city-states and duchies of the Italian peninsula. Only Hesse, in modern-day Germany, was willing to commit troops. The King of Sardinia and the Duke of Savoy was merely willing to commit to war if the French attacked first. Clearly, someone needed to inform the king that generally you don't get a choice whether or not to commit to war if you're the one being invaded first. So, with the Russians occupied in Poland, and almost everyone else wanting to stay out of it, the responsibility to crush the French fell on the Prussians and the Austrians. Theoretically, the Prussians possessed the Army of Europe. This was the famed army of Frederick the Great, the catalyst that had seen Prussia's glorious and at times unbelievable rise to great power status. It was the Prussians who had transformed military tactics in the 18th century. It was the Prussians that had remodelled the very art of waging war on the continent of Europe. Leading this spectacular force was one of the most respected and acclaimed generals on the continent, the Duke of Brunswick. According to the prevailing thought of the time, 
the French were about to be engaged by the 18th century equivalent of the Death Star, commanded by Lord Vader himself. As an English diplomat wrote, the French were about to battle with a great and formidable army commanded by the ablest general in the world. However, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that the Prussian army was hardly such an unstoppable force, and the weakness of this army was more than just a small thermal exhaust port. The Prussians hadn't fought a major war in almost two decades, and difficulties in mobilising the armed forces demonstrated a potential disconnect between reality and reputation. Furthermore, although the Prussians could theoretically muster roughly 170,000 soldiers, only 42,000 had been raised to invade France. The reality was that this campaign offered little material benefits for the Prussians, and a large army was deemed unnecessary for the coming campaign. Adding to the problems of this small and relatively inexperienced force was its leader, or perhaps more accurately, its leaders. The Prussian king, Frederick William II, couldn't help but intervene in military affairs. Reigning in the shadow of the famous tactician Frederick the Great, at key points in time, Frederick William II will get involved in this campaign. As a result, the Prussian army would suffer from questionable commands, and the interventions prevented a coherent military strategy from being followed by the Prussian leadership. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Joining the 42,000 Prussians was the other major partner in the First Coalition, the Austrians. Theoretically, the Austrians possessed an inferior but more numerous force than the Prussians, but the reality was slightly different. Unlike the Prussians, the Austrians had recently been at war. Fighting with the Ottoman Turks from 1788 to 1791 had provided the Austrian forces with valuable real-world experience. 
Furthermore, the Austrians were now familiar with living off the land in a hostile country devoid of plentiful resources. But despite possessing a theoretical force of some 220,000 men, the number of soldiers mobilised for war with France was considerably lower. The Hungarian Diet opposed mobilisation, as did other bodies within the empire. This opposition prevented Francis II from mustering all his forces. An additional restraint on the emperor came from the treasury. The Austrians were facing financial difficulties after a long war with the Turks, and so they were hardly in a position for a sustained conflict with their full army mobilised. Thus, like the Prussians, the Austrians would send a force to France that was just a mere fraction of their theoretical manpower. In total, some 29,000 men would join the Duke of Brunswick, although additional forces would exist in the Austrian Netherlands and along the Rhine. For all their talk of crushing the French, the army being mustered was hardly reflective of an all-consuming desire to crush the revolution. And that's because they didn't have an all-consuming desire to crush the revolution. The fact of the matter was that the Austrians, like the Prussians, the Germanic princes, the Swedes and the Russians, had other priorities. France was just one of the many things on the agenda. Finally, it should be noted that while the First Coalition wasn't deploying their full force against the French, they believed with all their heart that they didn't have to. The Prussians were certainly banking on the idea that quality would make up for quantity, and the disciplined Prussians and experienced Austrians would overcome the inexperienced French. This perspective was reinforced by the French émigrés, who themselves mustered a small force of four to 5,000 to partake in the invasion. According to the émigrés, the forces of revolutionary France were weak, ill-disciplined, and most importantly, leaderless. If you listened to the émigrés, the defenders of France would prove to be deserters after the first shot was fired. Thus, this was the army which sought to restore King Louis, and nearly 25 years later, they would succeed in restoring a King Louis. It would just happen to be King Louis XVIII. Better late than never. Of course, while we know the weaknesses and internal tensions of the First Coalition, the French revolutionaries did not. To them, the despotic armies of Europe were gathering to exterminate the revolutionary project. Originally, the revolutionaries had convinced themselves that the free French would triumph over the slave armies of Prussia and Austria. Such notions had died within weeks of the war erupting, when the initial French attacks on the Austrian Netherlands ended in disaster. After several months of inaction on the front lines, it was now the French who were on the defensive, and the severity of the threat was confirmed with the frightening success of the Prussian advance. As discussed in previous episodes, the Prussians crossed the frontier on the 19th of August. Days later, the Germanic hordes overcame the fortress of Longwy by the 23rd, triggering alarm in Paris. 
Worse still, news soon arrived that the Prussians had taken Verdun on the 2nd of September. Only 220 kilometres, or 140 miles east of Paris, the words of the infamous Brunswick Manifesto were ringing in the ears of the French. Brunswick had promised an ever-memorable vengeance against the capital, and it looked like he was about to deliver on his word. Panic seized the city. In the corridors of power, talk of retreat circulated amongst leading Girondin ministers. In the streets, talk of treason animated the most radical members of the popular societies. After house searches and mass arrests, the tensions and fear which gripped the capital finally exploded in the infamous September massacres of 1792. It appeared that the revolution was on the verge of a bloody and all-encompassing defeat. Yet, just weeks later, the Prussian onslaught that seemed almost unstoppable was stopped. And to explain the miracle of September, we need to reintroduce Charles-Francois de Maurier. For those interested, I've put in the show notes the relevant timestamps for episode 30, where de Maurier was first introduced, as well as his original military and strategic plans. Also, Patreon supporters of the show, episode 28, the bonus episode titled The Brousseauan Ministry, you may want to give that another listen if you haven't already, as the first section is on de Maurier, and both he and everyone else covered in that episode, most notably the Rolands, are not going away anytime soon. But let's do a quick recap. It's been a while since we discussed de Maurier, and even longer since we first introduced him back in episode 30. As a quick refresher, de Maurier had been a soldier prior to his elevation to the King's Ministry in March 1792. Described by many as brave, talented and intelligent, he was, above all else, ambitious. His enemies emphasised the negative connotations of that word, accusing him of being unscrupulous and a soldier for hire. Aged 53, when he became the foreign minister, de Maurier had played a major part in developing France's initial strategy for the Revolutionary War. De Maurier favoured aggressive manoeuvres into Austrian territory, and also hoped to use diplomacy to keep the Prussians out of the conflict, leaving Austria in a far more vulnerable position. More of a Fayettist than a Brissouan, he had nonetheless come to office as part of the Brissouan ministry in March 1792, alongside Roland during his first stint as interior minister. If you recall, Roland managed to get himself fired after penning a damning letter to the king in June 1792, and the other Girondin ministers were also shown the door. De Maurier wasn't dismissed by the king, but he nonetheless left office a few days later. After his departure from the ministry, de Maurier had rejoined the armed forces, and upon Lafayette's defection from the French army in August, de Maurier had been promoted, handed a tremendous opportunity to lead the Army of the North. The Prussians dismissed de Maurier as a political general, but it was his political connections which helped install him as the leading French commander in the North. 
many had reservations. Leading Montagnards were far from convinced, detesting both de Maurier's connections with the Girondins as well as his similarities to Lafayette. De Maurier had resisted Lafayette's attempts to march on Paris after the fall of the monarchy, and this action had gained him some goodwill amongst many Jacobins. Nonetheless, some French soldiers also had their misgivings. It must be noted that prior to 1792, de Maurier had not really distinguished himself on military campaigns in any great or miraculous way. This was the man who was replacing the hero of two worlds, and despite his long service in the military, he hadn't been the hero of a single town. Well, not yet, anyway. In time, de Maurier would be a hero, and he would be a villain. By mid-September 1792, the forces of the Duke of Brunswick were on the move. They had taken Longwy and Verdun, and the way to Paris was seemingly open for the Prussians. Interestingly, Brunswick's initial plan was not to take Paris in 1792. His initial goals were far more modest. Brunswick had hoped to reach the Meuse, a major river in northeastern France, which passes through the fortress of Verdun. Upon reaching the Meuse, Brunswick was content with taking any forts the enemy had left behind and preparing for another assault in the following spring. Thus, Brunswick wanted to march on Paris in 1793, not in 1792, and use his new foothold in France as a springboard to do so. But Brunswick's king, Frederick William II, had other ideas. He wanted to march and conquer Paris in 1792. I mean, the whole campaign was just going so well, so why not? And thus the Prussian leadership were divided over the basic principles of their strategy. The king's desires won out, and this decision had fateful consequences for the Prussian advance. Despite Brunswick's concerns that his forces were too small, and that the campaign season was nearing its end, the Prussians continued their advance towards Paris. On the 20th of September, 1792, one of the most famous battles of the revolution occurred. Actually, battle is a bit of a stretch. In the same way McDonald's is a restaurant, Valmy is a battle. Technically, the statement is true, but realistically the claim is indeed a bit of a stretch. The Battle of Valmy is perhaps more of a skirmish or a duel between the artillery gunners. On September 20, the forces, technically under the command of de Maurier and Brunswick, met in battle. Realising that his army was the only one between Brunswick and Paris, de Maurier likened the battle to that of the famous Thermopylae. However, de Maurier had stated that the French would fare far better than the Spartan king Leonidas, a very important detail. Approximately 180 kilometres or 110 miles east of Paris, components of the two armies met at the small commune of Valmy. The Prussians were convinced that a sustained bombardment 
would easily scatter the undisciplined shopkeepers, tradesmen and peasants which comprised the French army. Thus, the gunners on both sides erupted in a tremendous cannonade. I don't want to get into a play-by-play of this battle here, but I will give a thoroughly detailed account of the battle in the episode extra for this episode. That account, along with various opinions from historians about just what was the deciding factor of this battle, will be available for all the Patreon supporters of the show. Some historians promote fanatic patriotism, others the leadership of the troops, others denounce both of these things and point to something entirely different. So we'll be diving into the nitty gritty of Valmy in the episode extra and just what was the secret to success. Needless to say, there is little consensus about what was the decisive factor in this battle, so we'll be discussing a lot of grey military history. Once again, episode extras are one of the many perks for supporting the show on Patreon for as little as $2 a main episode. And I desperately, desperately, desperately need your help to keep Grey History on the air. The future of the show is in your hands. Now, the most important aspect of Valmy is the ending, and the winner was the French. Despite suffering more casualties, the French held their ground. The Prussians called off their relatively half-hearted advance, and before long, amazingly, the Germanic horde was retreating. The French had done it. Du Maurier had achieved what Leonidas had not. The unstoppable had been stopped. Thermopylae had been won. The effect that Valmy had on the Prussian morale was devastating, to say the least. Historian Timothy Tackett describes Valmy as a major psychological defeat for the Prussians, and contemporary accounts from the time support this notion. Amongst the Prussians at Valmy was Goethe, the famed poet, playwright, and novelist. An eyewitness to the battle, the esteemed writer reflected on its importance and rather dramatically, proclaimed it to be significant. Goethe remarked, From this day and this time forth commences a new era in world history, and you can all say that you were present at its birth. Goethe depicts to us the dire situation in the Prussian camp. Having been convinced that the French would disintegrate under a sustained artillery barrage, the Prussians had convinced themselves of an easy battle. After the French held their ground, the surprised Prussians lost their nerve, and Goethe recounts a subsequent scene of soldiers being unable to look each other in the eye while swearing and cursing punctuated the sad silence of defeat. Referring to the symbol of the Gaelic rooster, one Prussian soldier bitterly remarked, You'll see how these little cocks will strut now. We have lost more than a battle. Indeed, the Prussians had lost more than a battle. Although from a casualty perspective, one might claim that the Prussians had even won the day, historian Simon Sharma notes that from Brunswick down, 
the morale of the Prussian army had received a fatal wound. Historian Peter McPhee notes that the invaders retreated rather than had been defeated, but for the French, retreat was just as good. Days earlier, the Prussians seemed destined to take Paris, and now they were stalled and shortly thereafter in full retreat. A retreat which became characterized by panic and disorder. The reason for Brunswick's retreat, first across the frontier and then across the Rhine, was not really due to Valmy, however. As much as Valmy was a psychological defeat, the tangible defeat was coming from another source. Pretty much as soon as Brunswick had marched into France, it had begun to rain. The result was mud. Lots of it. So much so that Prussia's theatre of operations became a quagmire. With a long supply route stretching over northern France, the mud brought supplies to a virtual halt. One Frenchman remarked on the situation. Say what anyone will about the mud of Champagne, it is hard to form an idea of what it was that autumn. The open country was quite impracticable. The roads, washed up by continual rain and broken up by the movement of so many armies, were covered by five or six inches of chalky slush in which I marched whole hours without seeing my feet. Rain wasn't the only problem for the Prussians. With dwindling supplies came hunger, and disease followed shortly thereafter. Dysentery in particular devastated the Prussian camp. The Prussians were now in a dismal position. Theoretically, they could have advanced on Paris, but such a move came with considerable risk. The march was slowing to a crawl thanks to the mud, and supplies were running low. Furthermore, advancing to Paris would have left Brunswick vulnerable to an attack in the rear, and thus he chose the safer option, which was to retreat with his army, an army that was increasingly plagued by disease. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach 
the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Hello, everybody. This is a quick reminder that I need your help, not someone else's, but yours, to keep Grey History running. Patreon supporters of the show gain an ad-free feed, so no mid-episode interruptions like this one. They also gain access to almost half a dozen bonus episodes, along with all the episode extras that accompany the main show. You're not going to want to miss the episode extra for this episode, so support the show today by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can cancel any time, but a small tip really does help more than you may think. For as little as $2 a future episode, you can help Grey History stay on the air. So please, if you find Grey History entertaining, if you find it educational, help ensure more Grey History will be waiting for you tomorrow. Without your support, it might not be. With the Prussians in retreat by the start of October, what followed next was a series of counter-offensives which, just weeks before, seemed impossible. Historian John Dahlberg Acton claims that the invasion of 1792 roused a crouching lion, and thus the conquest of Europe began. By late September, the newly installed convention had declared France a republic. With the Battle of Valmy occurring just days before the official proclamation, the energised Republican armies advanced at multiple points across the eastern frontier. In late September, one French army marched north along the Rhine River. The French took Spire on the 30th, followed by Worms, and eventually the important towns of Mainz and Frankfurt. By the end of October, the French had penetrated deep into the Holy Roman Empire. In the south, the advance had been no less impressive. There, the Duchy of Savoy and the County of Nice were both occupied, with the King of Sardinia unable to halt the French advance. In an encouraging sign for the French, their arrival was greeted with enthusiasm by many commoners who anticipated the benefits of revolutionary policies. But all of these successes paled in comparison for what was about to come. Fresh off his victory at Valmy, the ever-ambitious de Maurier intended to outdo himself. But before we can discuss that, we need to touch on some rather controversial actions. With the Prussians retreating from northern France, de Maurier was presented with an opportunity to inflict significant pain upon his opponents. Quite controversially, however, the French commander did no such thing. Historian Adolf Thiers describes the French assault on the retreating Prussians as being conducted in a very dilatory manner, and it's clear that the pursuit of the Prussians was hardly vigorous nor bloody. Now, the reason why de Maurier doesn't brutally pursue the Prussians is a matter of debate. But whichever way you look at it, 
you always end up discussing one thing. Negotiations. After Valmy, Du Maurier opened negotiations with the Prussians. The purpose of these negotiations depends on who you ask. As discussed all the way back in episode 30, prior to the outbreak of the war in April 1792, Du Maurier had hoped to be able to keep the Prussians neutral. Obviously, he had failed, but after Valmy, it is argued by some that a fresh opportunity presented itself. Historian Simon Sharma describes Du Maurier as pursuing a strategy of level headed pragmatism as he attempted to secure Prussian neutrality through negotiations. The Prussians were at their most vulnerable, making the timing for such talks ideal, and Du Maurier viewed relentless attacks on his enemies as counterproductive for his broader aims. Sharing a similar conclusion is the Marxist historian George Lefebvre, who couldn't be much further away on the ideological spectrum than the revisionist historian Sharma. Lefebvre agrees that the prospect of Prussian neutrality, combined with the possibility of invading Belgium, inclined de Maurier to spare the enemy. Interestingly, historian Timothy Tackett has a different interpretation of de Maurier's efforts to seek peace with the Prussians. He presents de Maurier's actions as more tactical in nature. Tackett suggests that de Maurier was deliberately playing on Prussian hopes that he might be won over to counter-revolution. Du Maurier was, after all, not ideologically too dissimilar to Lafayette, who had attempted to march on Paris following the fall of the monarchy. However, far from waiting for peace, Tackett asserts that Du Maurier was using the time that negotiations brought him to bring in more troops and surround the enemy. Tackett doesn't offer an opinion if he thinks Du Maurier was genuine in his outreach to the Prussians, but he does make the point that Du Maurier was clearly preparing for the negotiations to come to nothing. But all of these interpretations paints Du Maurier's actions in a rather positive light, and there are those who vehemently disagree. Historian Lefebvre notes that de Maurier's decision to spare the enemy of serious harassment was viewed by some as a policy derived from treachery, and indeed, there are accusations against de Maurier of both counter-revolutionary actions and bribery. Anyone who knows what the future has in store for de Maurier can see why there are doubts as to his motivations. The anarchist historian Peter Kruputkin, for example, claims that de Maurier had motivations to install one of his own subordinates on the throne of France. The Duke of Chartres was serving in the army under de Maurier, but most importantly, he was the son of the popular and pro-revolutionary Duke d'Orléans. That meant that the Duke of Chartres had royal blood. In an interesting twist of fate, this man, who some of his troops had nicknamed the General of Equality, eventually does become a king. He's King Louis Philip I, installed in 1830. However, as we're discussing the events of 1792, that's some time away. The Duke of Chartres aside, some suggest that bribery was afoot, while others suspect 
that de Maurier's actions were all part of a master plan that would see him install himself as a future king of an independent Belgium. In an environment where leading revolutionaries were accusing the other of treason, accusations such as bribery and counter-revolution were all pretty common. Accusations of desires for the kingship of Belgium were admittedly less frequent, but hell, Robespierre and Brousseau were accusing the other of being paid agents for Austria and Prussia, so at this point, anything goes. I mean, we're getting to the point where I don't know if you could call yourself a true revolutionary unless you've been denounced for treason by at least one other person. Interestingly, historian Adolf Thiers, who is critical of de Maurier's overly lethargic stance towards the Prussian retreat, vigorously denounces the idea that he was working with the Prussians to betray the revolution. Instead, rather controversially given de Maurier's future actions, Thiers suggests that de Maurier should be proclaimed a national hero, given his leadership at Valmy and its significant consequences for the fate of the revolution. De Maurier, therefore, in spite of all his faults, in spite of his oversight at Grand Prix, of his negligence during the escape of the Prussians, was, nevertheless, the saviour of France, and of a revolution which has, perhaps, advanced Europe many centuries. He, we repeat, saved the nation from foreign domination and a counter-revolution, and furnished the impressive spectacle of a citizen saving his fellow countrymen in spite of themselves. No conquest, however extensive, is so glorious as this, or presents so moral a lesson. So, de Maurier's actions regarding the Prussian retreat is a contentious topic, one still shrouded in mystery thanks to the lack of surviving documentation of what went on. What is far less contentious, however, is what de Maurier did next, after the Prussians broke off negotiations. De Maurier had long hoped to invade the Austrian Netherlands, modern-day Belgium, and with the wind at his back, he proceeded to do just that. With the Prussians retreating across the Rhine, and with French armies making gains near Frankfurt, de Maurier could pounce on the outnumbered Austrian defenders, which were increasingly isolated in the Netherlands. Anticipating that he would be supported by the revolutionary momentum which had caused the Belgium Revolution of 1789, a revolution which the Austrians had crushed by the end of 1790, de Maurier convinced the convention that he should be allowed to go on the offensive. Which I'm just going to shoehorn right in here a reminder that I'm intending to do a mini-series on the Belgium Revolution, or the United States of Belgium, which will be available exclusively to the Patreon supporters of the show once we hit 100 Patreons. Since we're currently at about 90 or so, how about you join the ranks of the revolution and help in the battle of keeping grey history on the air? Go on, you know you want to. Speaking of battles, the battle of the campaign occurred on the 6th of November. The Battle of Jemap. 
some 55 kilometers or 34 miles southwest of Brussels. It was here that the French scored a tremendous victory, again under the command of de Maurier. Now, some historians aren't so amazed by this famed battle. For example, historian Charles Esdale states that it's very doubtful that the French would have won the battle if they hadn't outnumbered the Austrians two to one. Be that as it may, Esdale's less than ringing endorsement of de Maurier's victory didn't prevent the French from popping the champagne. For de Maurier, after Jemap, Belgium was his. In a matter of weeks, the French had routed all Austrian resistance and were at the Dutch border. At the start of September, Paris had been under threat. The revolution had been in mortal danger. The return of the old regime was imminent. By the end of November, the Prussians had retreated. The Austrians were bloodied, and French troops occupied Brussels, Frankfurt, Mainz, Savoy, Nice, hell, even a small part of Switzerland. The tables had most certainly turned, and this had significant implications. All of these victories came at a critical time for the new French Republic. I can't emphasize that enough. New French Republic. The new National Convention had first sat on the 20th of September, and it had proclaimed France a republic almost immediately. Thus, the first weeks of the Republic were not only in the bleak aftermath of the September massacres, but also in the wondrous atmosphere of military victory. Needless to say, these multiple and unexpected victories had a tremendous impact on the development of revolutionary politics and priorities. So it's this, the impact of the invasion of France and the subsequent counter-offensives that I want to focus on for the rest of this episode. The first thing I want to discuss is how all of these victories not only legitimised the new republic, but further weakened the legitimacy of monarchy and Louis XVI. When Louis was on the throne, the French war effort had experienced setback after setback. The initial attempts to invade the Austrian Netherlands had been disastrous, and during the resulting stalemate, Lafayette and members of the French army had even tried to turn their troops on Paris. The royal army had achieved, well, nothing. The Republican army, however, well, that was a very different scorecard. The Battle of Valmy, the French Thermopylae, occurred on the day the new convention sat. In French towns across the nation, news of the glorious battle arrived nearly simultaneously with news of the establishment of the Republic. With the enemy soon in retreat, and the Republican armies advancing as far afield as Frankfurt and Brussels, it appeared as if victory had materialised the moment the Republic had been proclaimed. This had two consequences. Firstly, it further tarred King Louis XVI with accusations of treason. It had long been rumoured that an Austrian committee, headed by the Austrian-born Queen Marie Antoinette, had been sabotaging the French war effort from the Tuileries Palace. Surely these victories 
which had occurred after the removal of the monarchy, was proof. At best, the monarchy had been a hindrance, but at worst, it had been treasonous. One contemporary, a Parisian bookseller, reflected that the victories demonstrated what a great people could accomplish once they had abolished a throne. The sentiment was shared in the halls of power. One deputy in the convention remarked, The end of the monarchy seems to have marked the end of all our difficulties. Of course, as much as the reversal of fortunes reinforced suspicions of treason within the court, they also reinforced that the decision to declare a republic was the correct course of action. With the monarchy came defeat, but with the republic, well, that seemingly came with victory. Historian Francois Alphonse Ollard argues that it was these victories which helped to convince a significant number of French citizens that the Republic was the way forward. With victories on the field, with the Prussians in retreat, with the French armies on the move, the Republic became synonymous with victory. It became synonymous with the nation's defence. If one wanted to defeat the invaders, if one wanted to throw back the hordes of despotic tyranny, if one wanted to keep the gains of the revolution, it soon became clear to some that that meant wanting the republic to succeed. Thus, one of the major consequences of the invasion of 1792 was that the French counteroffensive legitimized the convention and the republic it had proclaimed. Historian Francois Alphonse Ollard writes, The Republic made its appearance at the moment when the enemy, conquered, was beating a retreat. It was, for the soldiers, the personification of victorious patriotism. It personified, for France also, patriotism victorious. They had broken with the king, for he had not saved the country when she was threatened by foreigners. They rallied to the Republic, because it was hardly born before they saw it triumph over the stranger in its task of saving France. It seemed absolutely certain that the Republic was the best means of national defence, since men learned everywhere, at the same moment, the news of the existence of the new Republic and the news that the enemy was vanquished. Here is the explanation of this precipitate change of public opinion, which, from being monarchist, immediately became Republican. It was the victory of Valmy and the retreat of the Prussians that converted France so swiftly. So, the victories over the Prussians and subsequent occupations of neighbouring lands helped to legitimise and consolidate the Republic. Furthermore, these victories, occurring so soon after the fall of the monarchy, simultaneously discredited the crown in the eyes of many. But the ramifications of the Revolutionary War in 1792 did not stop there. These victories also had a tremendous impact on revolutionary enthusiasm, and in particular, enthusiasm for the Revolutionary War. Nowhere was the impact of these victories more felt than in the new National Convention.
Meeting for the first time on the 20th of September, the convention's fate would be determined on the battlefield. As the deputies gathered in Paris, it was a very real possibility that they would be fleeing the capital just days later. Furthermore, it was a very real possibility that their convention would be crushed by Parisian boots. Understandably then, the victories of the French army brought jubilation to the deputies, but perhaps none more so than those deputies who had championed the war in the first place. Brissot, Vernieu, Isnard and Godère, all members of the Legislative Assembly, had been elected to the convention. Throughout 1792, the prestige of the Girondins had suffered greatly after their predictions of a quick and easy war had failed to materialise. But, as the French armies marched across the frontier and into the lands of the enemy, the opposite occurred. Without the treason of the court holding back the power of the French people, the Girondins' claims of an easy war, a short war, a swift war, seemed to be materialising. Was Belgium not theirs? Was Frankfurt not theirs? Was Savoy and Nice not theirs? To say that the Girondins had been vindicated would be an understatement. However, all of this rapid success raised new and important questions for the French war effort, and the revolutionary enthusiasm that all these victories imparted on the deputies shaped their approach. Thus, these victories would shape the course of the revolution dramatically. The first immediate question that needed to be answered was what to do with all these new territories. Although the French had supposedly rejected the imperialism and conquest of the past, it didn't take long until the convention came to adopt policies that looked awfully similar. Rousseau, Danton, de Maurier and others from across the political factions of France began to champion the notion that the recently conquered territories should be annexed. The justification for this was twofold. Firstly, that France should extend itself to what was dubbed its natural borders. These borders were bound by the Pyrenees Mountains to the southwest and the Alps and the Rhine River to the east. Now, to claim that these were the natural borders of France was a bit of a stretch. For example, on the left bank of the Rhine were many Germans who most certainly did not believe that they naturally belonged to France. But that didn't stop the French from adopting this new sexy slogan. The idea of these natural borders came from the belief that this area represented the traditional lands of the Gauls. That was the rather loose historical justification for the claim, although many historians really consider this to just be all part of national mythmaking. Moving on, the second justification that was offered in favour of annexation was that it honoured the will of the local inhabitants that the people of these recently occupied lands had a right to self-determination and that they had determined that they wanted to join revolutionary France. Of course, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the level of enthusiasm for joining France 
varied greatly from person to person, town to town, region to region. And in some cases, the locals were not particularly excited about the prospect of joining France, particularly in some territories in the Rhineland. Nonetheless, it was very convenient that the regions that wished to be annexed lay within France's natural borders. And so, could the deputies really say no? I mean, it was just also convenient for everybody. Too convenient, some might say. And yes, I'm saying this with a smile. As a result, the annexations, or reunions as some like to call them, commenced. First was Savoy in late November, becoming provisionally the 84th Department of Mont Blanc. In the first few months of 1793, the county of Nice and the Principality of Sarm were all annexed to the French state, along with, oh, you know, just some minor territories including most of the left bank of the Rhine and all of Belgium. And yes, the British would have something to say about that. But having dealt with the delineation of France's natural borders and the fate of the territories already occupied by French armies, there were some rather large questions that the deputies still had to answer. What was to be done beyond those borders? What should be done with the rest of Europe? What should be done with the war? To answer this, it's worth a short visit back to episode 25, The Road to War, where three key reasons were outlined by the Girondins so fiercely as they demanded war with the German princes and subsequently Austria. The first was the menace of the French émigrés. These French aristocrats were hiding out in various territories in the Holy Roman Empire, gathering arms and men to attack the revolution. Well, like the Prussians, those émigrés which had just invaded France were now fleeing back across the frontier as fast as possible. Having seen them in action, these nightmarish monsters of the old regime were hardly the threat they once seemed. Surely that wasn't enough of a reason to maintain the war. The second key reason offered by the Girondins in their calls for war revolved around national honour. After Valmy, in particular after Jemap, surely the nation's honour was secure. Both the Prussians and the Austrians had been dealt symbolic defeats by the French army. So that just leaves the third key justification for war, a crusade for universal liberty. And here we find an objective which was not only incomplete, but rather conveniently unobtainable. Smells like one of those great corporate jargon objectives to me. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the success of the French armies in the second half of 1792 revitalised the Girondins' calls for a crusade against despotism and tyranny. With the French armies on the march, world revolution was on the agenda. Swept away by revolutionary enthusiasm, intoxicated by their own success, the convention, led by the Girondins in particular, changed the goalposts. One deputy wrote of destroying tyranny throughout the whole of Europe, 
while Brousseau declared in November that France cannot be calm until all of Europe was in flames. Amongst the, well, what I think can only be described as delusional and overly optimistic euphoria, a new formula for revolutionary war was articulated. The French armies would not rest until the tyrannical monarchs of Europe had been overthrown. All of them. In their place would be sister republics, new political entities governed by the people for the people. The Girondin deputy, Pierre-Louis Manuel, essentially proposed a near limitless pan-European war when he proclaimed to the Jacobin society, It is not enough to affiliate societies. We must affiliate kingdoms. The sheer scale of the convention's ambition, and to be frank, the sheer hubris of it, is remarkable. The French were currently at war with the great powers of Austria and Prussia, but the language of the deputies indicated something else entirely. People started talking of liberating Poland, Naples, Spain, Ireland. The list went on and on. The sister republics waiting for French assistance were numerous, to say the least. Some deputies, such as Robespierre and Marat, echoed their warnings of the past. A small minority, ignored by the majority of the convention, saw danger in this increasingly limitless war. A war that could jeopardise the revolution and infringe on the liberties of other peoples. Yet, with the trumpets of victory ringing in the ears of the deputies, Robespierre's concerns were unheard by many. Months ago, it was the Girondins who appeared discredited when their easy war was going poorly. Now that success was abundant, was it not clear that Robespierre had been wrong when he proclaimed that no one liked armed missionaries? In fact, it appeared that some people loved them. Fueling these calls for escalating the war effort were not just the French, but radical revolutionaries from across Europe. One particularly noteworthy example comes from the town of Bad Bergsaburn in the Western Holy Roman Empire. The people of the city, specifically the General Council, wrote a letter to the convention on November 10, 1792. In it, the citizens of this community, which was located near the French border, proclaimed that it would be impossible to endure tyranny any longer. Likening their current situation to slavery, the local inhabitants requested not only liberation, but annexation. Legislatures, declare to the universe that all peoples who shake off the yoke of despots and desire the protection of the French will be protected and assisted as if French. For a convention already intoxicated by their military success, such a request could not be ignored. The day after the letter was read to the convention, the body declared that it would extend fraternity and assistance to all peoples who sought to regain their liberty. The annexation of Savoy swiftly followed less than two weeks later. With such declarations and such annexations, before long it became clear that the revolution intended to make war 
with all of Europe. The French would liberate the continent, or at least they would try. The message for their neighbours was unmistakable. War on castles, peace for cottages. Critically, on the 15th of December, a new component was added to this increasingly ambitious foreign policy. Raising the stakes even further, the convention voted that occupied territories would be immediately revolutionised. That is to say that the local authorities would be suppressed, that the local taxes would be suppressed, and most importantly, that the local privileges would be suppressed. The values of the revolution would be immediately implemented once French troops were on the ground. Some questioned what right the French generals had to force foreigners to accept laws they did not want. But the convention was not interested in perpetuating what it saw as the despotism of kings. It was only interested in one thing. By the end of 1792, the convention was intent on waging war. But it would be more than that. Unlike the conflicts of previous centuries, this would be a war against tyranny. A war against despotism. A war against all of Europe. In short, it would be a crusade. A crusade for universal liberty. Thank you for listening to episode 43, The Invasion of France. In the next episode, we're going to explore the new national convention, its elections, its factions, and some of the perceptions surrounding the body, which might not be quite right. The episode extra for this episode will unpack the famous Battle of Valmy. We're going to examine not only what occurred, but all the various debates surrounding the encounter. There's no shortage of divergent opinions as to why the French were victorious, so it will be full of grey military history. As always, a huge thank you to the Patreon supporters of the show, with a special mention for the amazingly generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Jinx, Eric and Christy. To access an ad-free feed, five bonus episodes and a range of other exclusive content, support the show on Patreon right now. You know you want more grey history, so help make that a reality. Thank you for listening, stay safe, please share the show with anybody and everybody, and have a great day. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.